Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Mark chapter 2, we will begin reading in verse 23. And the word of the Lord reads, One Sabbath he was going through grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So now we're coming to the end of chapter 2 through our journey through the book of Mark. And, uh, and if you've been paying attention, what you will notice is that there, things are beginning to reach a breaking point. There's, it's, there's, they're, they're, it's reaching its first kind of really big tension point. There's a tension that's beginning to build in the story. And, and the old wineskins of the Pharisee self-righteous religious system are being stretched to the limits by, 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 by Christ and his actions and his teachings. And... And really, they're, they're about to burst. There's a conflict that's looming, you know, that's, 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 that's coming to a head here. And, and this all goes all the way back to the beginning of the gospel. Mark unashamedly opens up the gospel, proclaiming that Jesus is not just simply some prophet, or he is not just some wise rabbi, that he is the divine son of God, that he is God in the flesh. And make no mistake, that is exactly what Mark is proclaiming. Jesus is the divine son of God. And not only does he claim that, then he sets out to prove that by demonstrating Jesus' divine nature through Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry. You see, Mark begins by talking about John the Baptist and his ministry and, and calling people to repent and baptize, be baptized for the preparation of the Messiah that's to come. And, and this is a connection to the Old Testament that was hundreds of years before Isaiah said, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert, a highway for our God. John was clearly this voice in the wilderness preparing the way for the Messiah. And then, and then when John baptizes Jesus, the picture of the Trinity is on full display for all to see because when Jesus comes up out of the water, Jesus the Son, uh, the, the, uh, he comes up out of the water and, and God the Holy Spirit descends upon him and the Father from heaven says, this is my son, you are my son with whom I'm well pleased. And all three members of the Trinity are present in that moment. And then right after that, Jesus goes right into spiritual combat with the devil as he is tempted in the wilderness by Satan for 40 days, and he defeats Satan with the word of God. And then Jesus emerges and begins his public ministry proclaiming that the time has come and the kingdom of God is it's here now and the way that you get into the kingdom is, to, is not to follow a bunch of rules or a bunch of religious traditions, but to repent and believe the gospel. And he took this message of, of faith and repentance throughout all of Galilee. And Jesus then called his first disciples and began preaching to the Jews in houses of worship called synagogues. And one Sabbath day, he preached a message that shocked everyone because he was preaching with authority, unlike any of the rabbis that he ever had. He was preaching with the authority of God. And then Jesus proves that he has this authority by casting out demons who themselves even acknowledge his divine nature. And then he also proves his authority by, by healing the sick and, and the lame. And Jesus becomes wildly popular during this time as he preaches the gospel and he heals people and he casts out demons. 
And everywhere he went, a big crowd followed him. But then things begin to, to, to change and come to a head when Jesus seizes an opportunity um, to not only heal a paralytic man, but also to publicly declare and to demonstrate that he has the power to forgive sins. To which some would ask, who can forgive sins but God himself? And Jesus demonstrated that he had that power, inferring that he was indeed God in the flesh, and that this was the first of five conflicts that, that Mark records between Jesus and the Pharisees. And the first of these instances, Jesus shakes up their world by, by basically claiming the divine power to be able to forgive sins. And, and they thought that this was blasphemy. And then in the second instance, he shakes up their perception of how the Messiah is supposed to behave because, because not only is, does he call Levi one of, the worst, one of the worst kinds of sinners to repentance and faith, but he also has dinner with him and other sinners and tax collectors. And, and this seems to be impossible to them because how can someone who claims to be God or claims to be from God or associated with God can actually even associate themselves with such wretched, awful sinners? And then in the third instance, things begin to really get a bit more personal and heated because Jesus begins to challenge not only the Pharisees' understanding of the Messiah and also the nature of God's mercy, but now he's going to challenge their very notion of what it means to be righteous. Their self-righteous legalism is what he's going to challenge. Because these, fierce, these Pharisees, they, they sincerely want to be right with God, you know, but they had thought that, 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 the, that the way that you you were to do that, the way that you please God and get in his favor was to keep the law, God's perfect standard. And they believed that they had the ability to do that. They believed that the way that you kept the law was to follow a complex system of man-made rules and traditions that would basically act as buffers to help you keep the law. They believed that if a person was dedicated enough and they would work hard enough, and, and was disciplined enough and were committed to follow all the traditions laid out by the rabbis and the teachers, then God was obligated to accept them. That God was obligated to love them because they kept the law. But Jesus, this man who claimed to be the son of man, which is a messianic title, a person who can cast out demons, and a person who can heal people, and, and, for, and he claims he can forgive sins, right? This man isn't even following the rules, he and his disciples don't even do the basic things like avoid contact with sinners or, or observing regular fasts. Jesus wasn't meeting any of the legalistic standards. And then Jesus turns the tables on them and in essence says that your legalism or your, your old tradition is like an old brittle wineskin that's worn out. And God and the, and the gospel, right, the truth about salvation is like new wine, which means the gospel or the way that you get saved and your traditions are completely incompatible with each other. Because the new wine will burst the old wineskins and ruin both of them. The gospel cannot be combined with your old traditions. Because the gospel destroys legalism. The gospel is really the opposite of legalism. And legalism undermines the way to salvation. So you cannot put the two together. So in fact, what Jesus is saying is, is you guys have it all wrong. Right? Your intentions might be good, but your view of the world is wrong. The system that you've committed your entire life to, the system that you have built your entire identity on is wrong. It cannot save you, is the message that Jesus was really beginning to communicate to these Pharisees. Now, in today's text, and what we'll see in next week is Jesus begins to challenge the very core, right, of how these Pharisees understand their identity as Jews and, and, and what it means to faithfully keep 
the law. And the result is going to be that, that this, this new wine of, of salvation, right, through faith and repentance, will burst the wineskins of the, of the Pharisees' legalism, and they will decide to kill him because of that. That's, that's where this is going. We all know that, right? Because they cannot stand to let go of their legalist ways. Now, before we dive into the text, again, and begin before we look down our noses at these religious leaders, we need to remind ourselves we have a tendency to do just the same thing, right? We, we have a tendency to, to, all of us, as we become believers, to, to, to lean not towards so much grace, but towards legalism. It just seems like a natural thing that happens to us. We tend to lean towards legalism, especially when it comes to other people. In fact, in the commentary uh, uh, on Mark, David Platt and Daniel Aiken and Tony Morita, they write uh, this. They say, few things are more destructive, seductive, and deceptive to true and vital relationship with God than the deadly poison of legalism. It is destructive because it, it breeds death rather than life. It is seductive because it, is, it, is, it has a natural allure for our flesh uh, that causes us to look at ourselves rather than to Christ for our spiritual status before God. And it's deceptive because it makes us think that we're the spiritual elite when actually we are spiritual slaves. They go on to say legalism is raising to the level of biblical mandate and, and, and command what God has neither commanded nor prohibited in his word. It's taking traditions and preferences and imposing them on other people as an act of spiritual superiority, even though the Bible does not make such practices universally um, prescriptive. Legalism is destructive, it is seductive, and it is deceptive. Because it's very easy for us, like the Pharisees, to look to ourselves and our own behavior rather than God to judge whether, whether or not we're right with him. And, and we're, all, we're all prone to do it. Right? We're all prone to the poison of legalism. In fact, let me just give you one example of how the church bends towards legalism. And, and, and this is an issue that the church has wrestled with for a long time and continues to wrestle with. And some people even might still wrestle with it when I talk about it. Right? But it's the, it's the issue of alcohol consumption. Because if there's an issue that Baptists have seem, seem to be able to rally around is the prohibition to drinking alcohol. In fact, many of you probably have grown up in churches, especially Baptist churches, who have been probably told that drinking alcohol, whether it's beer or wine or whiskey, is a sin. I mean, that's, that's what I was taught since I was a little bitty guy. That, that was like what I was taught. I was told that drinking alcohol, for whatever reason, is a sin forbidden by the Bible, and the members of churches and deacons of the churches and elders are not allowed to, under any circumstances, to have a drink, not even a drop. In fact, it seems like a badge of honor for, for a lot of a lot of people to say, a lot of Christians, you know, legalist Christians to say, I ain't never had a drop in my entire life. How many, how many of you have heard that before? Right? I, think, I think we all have, right? right? This is classic legalism. Because I want you to hear me on this, right? Before you tune me out. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, thou shalt not consume alcohol. It, it's not in there, right? If the word of God is our standard for, for life and faith and practice, it's, it's not in there. It doesn't say that. In fact, Jesus drank wine. Right? Jesus turned water into wine. He didn't turn water into grape juice. Okay? And, and, and to, to try to make the text say that, that that's just historically just not plausible. Right? And, and when Jesus started the tradition of the Lord's table, it wasn't Welch's grape juice that was in the cup. Right? It, was, it was wine. And, and in fact, the tradition of using grape juice instead of wine for the Lord's table actually didn't exist until 
1869 when a Methodist minister named Welch decided he didn't want to have alcohol served for communion, and he created the very first marketable grape juice. So less than 200 years ago, right? This is documented history. So the consumption of alcohol is not prohibited itself by the Bible. What's prohibited is drunkenness. The Bible makes it clear that you are not to be drunk, that when you are drunk, even a little bit, you are in sin because you have lost control. Drunkenness and drinking too much is forbidden by the Bible. You are never to ever be under any circumstances drunk. Drunkenness is a sin, and so is addiction to alcohol. Becoming addicted to alcohol is forbidden by the Bible. Understanding that, right? Now understand, the line, this is where, this is where, the, where it gets weird for some people, because the line between alcohol consumption and consuming too much alcohol is a blurry one for some people, right? Because some people, they just don't know how to stop. There's the issue. There's the issue, that, that, that there's a danger there, and people want to take the, the guardrail and push it way over here and say, well, don't ever even touch it, and now we're going to make that God's law. That's not, right? So, I, so some people don't know when to stop, and, and the same goes for, for, for addicts. What point does a person become addicted? That, those, are, those are tough, important questions. And there's certainly many serious, devastating health effects and, and, and financial and family consequences that result from drunkenness and addiction. So understand the, the desire to, again, set the guardrail way out, way out there. Alcohol addiction and overconsumption can destroy lives. It can, it, can, it can cause death. And for so many, it seems like simply avoiding all alcohol altogether is the right thing. It's, it's a wise thing, right? And that's great for them, and I encourage that, right? If you can't drink without getting drunk, even just a little bit, then, then don't ever touch it. If you, if, if you have to have a drink every single day to calm your nerves, then you probably have an addiction, and you shouldn't ever touch it again. If you're prone to be somebody who, who abuses it, don't ever, right? But when we take that standard and begin to apply it to everyone else, and when we begin to, to, to try to make that a universal law, we begin to get in trouble. Right? And when we begin to teach it as, as, as if it were the law of God related to salvation, then we are really getting in, into trouble because we've fallen into the trap of legalism. Because now we're speaking for God, for God himself has not spoken. And so that's exactly what the Pharisees have done here. And by the way, the church has done multiple things like that, like the issue of tattoos, right? You know, the issue, you know, the issue of, of how people dress in churches, worship music styles, right? You know, Bible versions. There's, there's lots of ways the church has really decided that, hey, God says more than what God actually says, right? That's exactly what the Pharisees had done. Instead of looking at the, new, at, at the law of God and realizing that they can't keep the law and then depending on God in faith to lead them and to save them, they over the centuries built up this system of man-made rules that were designed to help them to do what is right. But these rules, rather than, rather than a practical guide to help them, became a part of the law itself. It became a part of what they believed that God had, had ordained. And these man-made rules led to a distorted understanding of God's law itself and man's relationship to it. And this system of religion, this, this legalism, is incompatible with the gospel, which is what we will see here in the text. In fact, look with me, verse 23. It says, One Sabbath, he was going through grain, the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Now, the thing that we need to remember, it's, 
the world is different than, than it is now. And the world at that time was an agricultural world. That the production of food was the world's greatest industry at the time, right? It's, it's, so it wasn't like manufacturing or, or technology. Like the idea of, of food production is not even a big deal to us because it's so plentiful. But then food production was the thing. That's why fishing was so important, right? And, and what was even more important, that was farming. And all around the region of Galilee, there, in the Middle East, there were these farms. And the most important of these crops was grain. There were grain fields everywhere, and people walking through grain fields, going from one place to the next, was just really not an uncommon thing at all. Right? It might seem strange to us, right? but if you think about it, like it's not any different than the kids who, who cut across the vacant lots to walk across the school here through the desert. It's, it's really kind of the same idea. And so Jesus and his disciples were walking through grain fields, and they began to pick heads of grain off the stalk. And the reason why they did that <clears throat> is so they could have a little snack. Because they would take these heads of grain and they would rub it in their hands really, really, really hard like that to loosen the chaff off of the kernels. And then they would blow in their hands to blow out the chaff. And then that way they have left is the raw kernels of grain. And, and that way they would have a quick snack because they were hungry, right? You see, the thing is, is their world is different. It's not like they could stop by the convenience store and grab a bag of peanuts or a granola bar, right? You know? And so they were picking heads of grain to snack on. And, but, but notice, right? Notice what happens. It says in verse 24, And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now this, this verse right here, you could read over that and think, Okay, no big deal. But there is a whole lot here. In fact, there's a lot that requires some unpacking. Because, in fact, the first thing I want you to notice is, is how do, why, why do the Pharisees actually, are they even noticing what, what they're doing? And the reason for that is because they actually the Pharisees are there with them wherever they're going. So remember Jesus at the high point of his, his popularity and crowds are following him everywhere, including the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees know there's something that's up. They know that there's something special about Jesus. He's done crazy, wild things, and he's making extraordinary claims about who he is. And so they're following him around, you know, trying to figure out, is this guy the Messiah or is he not? And so they were at hand to witness what the disciples were doing. Secondly, notice um, that they say, that the disciples were doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath, which really raises a couple more points. Like the fact that plucking heads of grain for a snack was not considered theft or against the law. In fact, it was perfectly legal to do that. In the law of Moses, it reads, <clears throat> in Deuteronomy 23:25, it says, And if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Or in other words, you can certainly grab a handful for a snack, but you can't go in there and harvest a bunch of it because it doesn't belong to you. Right? And so the act of plucking grain by hand and, and having a little snack was not against the law. What, what made this act unlawful according to the Pharisees, and that's not what they did, was when they did it. Right? They were plucking the grain on the wrong day was the issue. You see, this took place on the Sabbath. They were plucking heads of grain for, for, for their snack on the Sabbath, and they thought that this was illegal. And this was a big deal to them because, because they were breaking the Sabbath. Now, if we're going to understand what's happening here and really get our head wrapped around the impact of Jesus' words and Jesus' actions here, what we need to do is understand why this was such a big deal to them. And it begins with understanding what the Sabbath is. The Sabbath is... You know, which is every Saturday, beginning from Friday evening at sundown, 
to Saturday evening at sundown is the Jewish day of worship similar to our Lord's Day, which for us is, is Sunday. Right? It's a day set aside for the Jews to worship, and, and it's for devotion, and most importantly, for rest. Similar to our Sunday, Sunday for us is supposed to be about worship, devotion, and resting from all of our work activities. But for the Jews, the Sabbath was a deeply rooted, ingrained part of their, their cultural identity. It was part of, of who they were as a nation. It was a part of who they were as a neighborhood. It was a part of who they were as family. And the Sabbath was a matter of law for them. Right? It was not like an optional thing. It was a matter of law. In fact, it goes back right, all the way to Genesis. God created, it says, the entire universe in six days. And then after six days of creative activity, it reads in Genesis chapter 2, it says, And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he had rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And so the Sabbath for the Jews then was not simply a day of rest and worship, but it was a reminder. It was supposed to be at least a reminder of the relationship with God, right? They rested on the Sabbath because, because God rested on the, on the Sabbath. Now, if, if that were all there were to it, that would be one thing. But there's, but there's more. Because the Pharisees didn't just observe the the Sabbath, because God rested on the seventh day. They observed the Sabbath because it was commanded by God in the law. And they rested on the Sabbath because God said, you need to do this. In fact, he says in, in the Ten Commandments, commandment number four, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the, to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work for you, your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourners who are within the, your gates. For in the sixth day the Lord made heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You see, the Jews and the Pharisees were commanded by God to keep the Sabbath, and if they failed to do so, then there were severe consequences. God through Moses says, you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does not work on it, whoever does work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Again, another reference to death. Again, in, in Exodus 35, two, six days shall, shall, uh, six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. The consequences for, for breaking the Sabbath were, were severe. Now, this right here, I think, is a really good place for us as Christians who are not Jewish, right, to ask, what's the big deal here? Right? Because the Sabbath was supposed to be a day of rest. It was supposed to be a day where people didn't have to go to work. It was a day off. So why is this a big deal? Why, 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 the, why the, the threat of death here? I mean, I like to rest, right? I kind of like a lazy day once in a while. I like not having to go to work. I don't like, like, you know, having a day off where I don't have to do chores around the house. I mean, so what is the big deal here? Why does this thing make, make the Ten Commandments, and why such a drastic punishment in order to make people rest? Why is this so serious? And, and the answer simply is that mankind has a propensity for greed and idolatry. 
And even though that God said that the Jews needed to rest one day a week, and really that, that's really good for them right, to rest that one day of the week, man's heart is very fickle. And because of his greed and his desire to get ahead and have more, he's going to be tempted to work the extra day. Because in an agricultural economy, the more you work, the more you earn. And so there's this temptation to spend that day, you know, instead of resting in close fellowship with family and with God and worshiping him, there's a temptation to go out and try to make an extra buck. Or worse, not going out yourself, but then sending out your slaves or your employees or your, or your children to go work on their day of rest. Greed is a huge reason why men will violate the Sabbath, right? Which ultimately leads to idolatry. God has given right, the Jews one day out of seven to spend with him. Six days. For six days, you can work as long and hard as you want to, right? But one day is set aside to spend with God, to spend it with him. But the idols of wealth and success and material possessions and security are crazy seductive. And they still are. Many people gladly give up an opportunity to spend time with the Lord in order to go out and make an extra buck. Many people will, will gladly right, give up an opportunity to spend time with the Lord to go out and get busy doing other things that they feel are really more important to them than their, their faith. They don't say it's more important, but by their actions, it is more important. Or worse, people will, then, will gladly flock to the false teachers who will say, come to God, all who will, and God will give you all of the possessions and all the material things that you ever wanted instead of coming to God for God himself. The fact that people are willing to work a lot and work hard has never, ever, ever been the issue, right? The issue is, is their propensity for greed and idolatry. God set aside the Sabbath day so they would not just simply rest, but rest in him. Because he's the creator. He's the sustainer and the provider. He's the one who, who, who took care of them. And he desires for them to rest in him, that they would spend the day in him, trusting in him, that they would just take a day and slow down and get connected to, to God and, and, and family and reflect upon his goodness and enjoy you know, him and, and trust that, hey, he's in control of it anyway. That's what the Sabbath was supposed to be about, simply a day of resting in God. But men's hearts are hard and greedy and idolatrous, and because of that, they begin to look for Loopholes, right? They begin to look for ways around the system. If you have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? They, they were looking for, for a way around the system. And this begins with by asking the question like, well, what does work actually mean? Well, what specifically is work? Is, is working, me getting my tools ready for the night before, is that work? I mean, I'm not really working. I'm just kind of prepping. Is that the same thing, right? Or, or is, is cooking food work? What about the fact that I like to sew? It's a hobby. Is that considered work? What about my garden? I mean, I know that I can't go out in the field and work, but what about my garden? I really like to garden. Is that the same thing? What about making the bed? What about washing clothes? What about feeding animals? Is that work? You see, people have this tendency when it comes to faith to miss the point of the relationship with God, right? The point was to rest in him, to focus on him. But the point became for them as, what are all the things that I can do on the Sabbath that aren't work? What are all the things that I'm permitted to do on the Sabbath that don't get me in trouble? Right? And, and before we judge their hearts for that, we're just like that. 
today. Right? Now this, you, we might not be asking the question like, what is, what is work? But we certainly ask this question. Um, is that considered a, a sin? Like, is it a sin if I don't come to church today because I just don't want to? Is it a sin for me to have a glass of wine with dinner? How about two? Three? Four? Maybe five? Is it a sin that I'm having dinner with someone that's the opposite sex that's not my spouse? I mean, it's for work. Is that a sin? Is there... Is it a sin for me to, to drive faster than the speed limit? Is it a sin, you know, that when I talk about someone else that I at least start with the phrase, well, I'm not gossiping here, but, right? Is it a sin for me to, you just fill in the blank, whatever thing that comes to your mind? Because what we want to do is we want, we want the limits. We want the boundaries, right? How close can I get to sin without actually sinning, Right? We want to know what the limits are. We, like them, want to know what the rules are. We want to know what the list of to-dos are and what what the don'ts are so we can make sure that we are good with God rather than drawing close to God and desiring time with Him and depending upon Him. Just give us the boundaries. Give us the rules so I know that I'm okay. And that was what it was like for the Jews. The Sabbath wasn't about being close to God for them anymore. The Sabbath wasn't, was, was about not violating the myriad set of rules. God said, don't work on the Sabbath. Well, what does that mean? Well, the, over time, several rabbis hashed out a, what they consider to be work, and they broke it down into 39 categories. And let me just read them for you. Carrying anything, burning, extinguishing, finishing, writing, erasing, cooking, washing, sewing, tearing, knotting, untying, shaping, plowing, planting, reaping, harvesting, threshing, threshing, winnowing, selecting, sifting, grinding, kneading, combing, spinning, dyeing, chain stitching, warping, weaving, unraveling, building, demolishing, trapping, shearing, slaughtering, skinning, tanning, smoothing, marking. That's the 39 categories of, of, of things you're not allowed to do. And understand, those things are not written in the law of God. Okay? Those are not the things that, that, that are written in God's law. The law says do not work, and we instinctively kind of know when we're working. We know what work really is. Right? But, but these men, had to, to, because of their hardened hearts, had to create these definitions of work and define these 39 categories of, of activities that were considered to be work. But, but to make matters worse, these categories themselves weren't even specific enough. Because people continued to press the limits and look for loopholes, and so over time it became expanded and expanded. For instance, like you're forbidden to carry anything on the Sabbath. Like you can't pick up a rock and then carry it with you, because that's considered work. But you can pick up your child and carry your child with you. But if your child picked up a rock and you picked up your kid, then you were guilty of carrying because you were indirectly working through your... You see what I'm saying? Yeah, no, this is, this is a Sabbath law. Right? Or how about weaving? We know what weaving is, right? We know it's related to cloth, right? Making cloth. Well, people didn't braid their own hair or their children's hair because that could be considered weaving, and that was against the law to do that on the Sabbath. Or how about brushing dried mud, from your shoes and your clothes. That was prohibited on the Sabbath because you were technically grinding because you were like taking it and making it. Uh, this, these are the laws. 
And the list goes on and on. Even today, there's, there's ridiculous ones like the, the law against extinguishing a, a fire, right? So you can't turn off a light switch because you're technically extinguished. Yeah. I mean, even Orthodox Jews today still abide by these things. And the list goes on and on. And suddenly these things, you know, wouldn't, that wouldn't normally be considered work by a normal human being become prohibited by the Sabbath. Like these men walking to the grain field, picking heads of grain for a snack. Any reasonable person would know that they're not working. Right? They're not trying to you know, violate God's law. They're not harvesting grain. They're not threshing grain to make a living. Right? They're just simply trying to get a snack because they're hungry. This is not an attempt to work to dishonor God. But the Pharisees, these followers of Christ, were, were, you know, they thought these guys were an egregious violation right, of the Sabbath law. These men were considered Sabbath breakers. They were harvesting grain. They were, they were working on the Sabbath. And in their minds, that these men, because of that, deserved the death penalty. This was serious. Because they believed that salvation was to be found in their efforts and striving to keep the law. And they believed right, that God would not send the Messiah to rescue Israel until the entire nation perfectly kept the Sabbath. And so they were really picky about it. And so, these, and so what these men were doing by innocently picking grain for a snack was like striking at the heart of all these, what they, what they held dear. It was striking at the heart of the Pharisees of, of who they were as a people. It was, it was striking at the heart of their very identity as Jews. And so this was, a, this was a deep affront to them. We think people were easily offended today. These men were really offended by something really stupid. Now how can Jesus then, right, in their mind, a man who claims the title of son of man, a man who claims to be able to forgive sins, how can a man like this tolerate his disciples being Sabbath breakers, breaking the law? Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath, they asked. And then he answered, have you never read what David said? When he was in need and was hungry, he and, who, and those who were with him, how they entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the great the high priest, and ate bread, the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is that Jesus, he doesn't even respond to them by arguing about their traditions. He doesn't even go there, right? Just like with fasting, he doesn't argue with them about their traditions. I mean, he could have. He could have said, you know what, you guys, <laughs> you're just a misapplying the law. You guys, you guys are way off base. All these man-made rules, you guys, you, you know who made them up, right? You know that they're not God's law. You know that you're wrong here. You're wrong in how you apply this. He could have said that, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he bypasses the tradition altogether, and he goes right to the source, and he goes to the word of God, and he cites Scripture. And this is important because Jesus, for, for Jesus, Scripture is the authoritative word of God. And we need to understand that. Right? We live in a context where people will set aside the entire Old Testament and the portrait that, that it paints of God, especially the, the wrath of God, in favor of the kinder, gentler God that they think that they see in the New Testament. And even some people will say, oh, I don't care about the New Testament. All I care about are the red letters of the Bible. I don't care about anything else. What did Jesus actually say? I don't care what Paul said. What does Jesus actually say? Well, let me just tell you if you have a view of Scripture, your view of Scripture needs to be like Jesus's. And Jesus had a high view of Scripture. He saw the Scriptures as authoritative, inerrant, and sufficient. 
Right? That's why he doesn't argue with them about traditions. He goes right to the scripture to make his point. He uses the authority of the word of God to make his points. And what he does is he cites a story that the Pharisees were going to be very familiar with. They were very familiar with the history of David. And the story where David was on the run from King Saul, who was, who was looking to kill him. Right? And, and, and David's, you remember, he's, he's God's anointed to replace Saul. David's on the run for his life, and, and he was in need of supplies and provisions and food, and he comes to the tabernacle, God's house, and he met the high priest there, and there was nothing there for him to eat. There was no provisions for him except for the bread of the presence, which was set out in the tabernacle for God. And, and the way this worked was is every day they would make loaves of bread that they place out before God, and the next day they'd make new loaves, and they would switch them out. They'd take the old ones and put the new ones out, and the old ones were then for the priests to eat. That was the law. And no one else was, was allowed to eat this bread by, by, uh, by ceremonial law. But here we have a historical account where it's recorded in the word of God that David has been given the bread for him to eat and also for his men. And no one's condemning David. <laughs> Like no one's standing saying, see, David was wrong. No one, even the Pharisees didn't think that he did anything wrong. No one, I mean, he did technically, you know, break the ceremonial law, right? But, but no one called for David's death. And so Jesus uses this text as an illustration to say that these men were not doing anything wrong. And then to drive this point home, he says, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, which again, would have been something shocking for these men to hear. The whole world, right, for them was the, was the Jewish experience. It was about keeping the law. It was about keeping the Sabbath. It was about obeying the rules. They never knew anything different. And, and, and not just the law of Moses, but all the traditions that were passed down in the Talmud and, and, and also all the oral traditions. The whole world was one great big checklist for them of things that they needed to do and a great big list of things that they needed to avoid. That was their whole existence, they were legalists to the bone. Right? And they were the worst kind of legalists because they thought that they were righteous before God because of their legalism. They had created for themselves a faith that was domesticated into humanly attainable standards and, and the notion that all of these rules about the Sabbath, right? the notion that, 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 that all of those, those rules, you know, being really, that they missed the point of what God was intending really never occurred to them. They n it never occurred to them. And so, and so well, this must have been absolutely shocking when Jesus cited this, cited this text, right, and said that the Sabbath was made for man and man not for the Sabbath because under the system and, and the, the understanding that they had that man was really kind of a slave to the rules, that man had to live to obey the rules. But as one commentary notes, it says the purpose of the Sabbath was not to put people in kind of a straitjacket. It was, it was for their good, it was to provide rest from their labor and opportunity for worship. It was never about having to begrudgingly keep a set of regulations. The Sabbath was meant to be a blessing and not a burden. The Sabbath was meant to be something good and not something troubling. The purpose of the Sabbath was to be a gift to mankind. Because guess what? Mankind needs rest. We all need, mankind needs to slow down. Mankind needs time to worship and, and get with God. Mankind needs to stop and recenter his heart and his mind to the one who created and sustains him. And it's the same way today, by the way. The Lord's Day is not supposed to be something that we feel like, oh, I have to go to church today. 
It's supposed to be a blessing. It's supposed to be a blessing that you don't have to work. Right? It's supposed to be a blessing that you get to come here and meet with your brothers and sisters in Christ and love on them and see them. It's supposed to be a blessing that you come here into the presence of God and you get to lift up your voice in love and adoration and praise to him. It's supposed to be a blessing you get to come hear the word of God declared because did you know that when you hear the word of God read that that is God's own voice speaking to you? It's supposed to be a blessing that you, that you worship together with your family and it's supposed to be a blessing that when you go home with your family that your heart is full of the love of God and your mind is rested on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord's Day is about, it was about resting in the one who died to set you free. It's supposed to be a blessing and not a burden. And it was exactly the same thing with the Sabbath. God did not create the Sabbath to be some ritual that man had to observe. It was meant to be a blessing in his life that affected the rest of his life. And as such, it was always legal to do good on the Sabbath. Whether it was eating a snack to quell your hunger, whether it was helping your neighbor fix something, whether it was healing someone, right, which we're, we're going to see Jesus do next week. There was never a law against doing what is good on the Sabbath. And so these men's traditions are completely out of line. And, 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 the, and these mandatory man-made traditions about the Sabbath are just really incompatible with the gospel. You can take the gospel of Jesus Christ and try to force it in a system of religion like this. Right? You, you, can't, you can't make it fit. It won't, it won't work. That's why when, when you hear someone say, you know what, if you, don't, if you miss church, you just might not be saved. That might be a good place to run from. Right? Or if you hear someone say, well, you know what, you, know, you can't go to church unless you wear a suit and tie or unless you, you look a certain way or, or they have a certain kind of worship music or you can't go to church unless, unless you are tithing. I'm, and I'm telling you, preachers love that one, by the way. All right? All right. Tithing, Jesus said you know, he wants cheerful givers to give as, as they are led to give. Right? This, this idea that you must give 10% or you're not a Christian, that is just, that's, that's legalism because you can't even make that case out of the New Testament. Not saying that you shouldn't tithe. I'm saying that I think it's a good thing, right? But the thing is, is but, but, but the legalism permeates even the church today. You need to run, right? Now, if, if what Jesus said here was not enough to set these men back on their heels, because it just, he just challenged their whole worldview. You've got to understand that. Like, he just basically challenged their whole worldview, right? The worldview that they, that they had all their lives, right? If that were enough for Jesus to say, hey, you got it wrong about the Sabbath, then he goes one step further and he says, the Sabbath was, was, was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is the Lord even of the Sabbath. You see, Jesus takes this one step further and declares that he has authority over the Sabbath itself. The Son of Man a messianic title he applies to himself. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And this word Lord is from the Greek word kurios, which literally means a person exercising absolute ownership rights. This word means Lord, it means master, it means owner. And so there's no mistaking what he is trying to say here. He is saying that the Sabbath belongs to the Son of Man. The Sabbath belongs to Christ, which means the Pharisees' rules and traditions are void. 
They're meaningless. Jesus is the Lord, not them. What they say about the Sabbath is not the law. Their legalism is pointless because Jesus, understand this, Jesus, what he's saying here, when he's declaring this, he is saying that he is God. Just like when he said he had authority to forgive sins, he, he, was, he was declared, right, he's declaring that he was, he was God because who but God can forgive sins? And who but God is the Lord and master and the owner of the Sabbath? One of the central tenets of the, the Jewish faith in God. Jesus, once again, is clearly making the provocative proclamation about his deity. And, and the pressure now is beginning to build in these old wineskins of the Pharisees' legalistic system. It's beginning to build. And we will see next week that, that they will burst. And the result will be they will finally make a decision. We're going to have to kill this guy. Now, <clears throat> there's a lot here in this, I mean, in this text. In fact, there's a lot more we could have talked about, a lot more that could have been said. In fact, some of you who are familiar with this probably said, well, why didn't you talk about this? Why didn't you talk about that? Because again, there is, a, there is a lot here. And we've covered a lot this morning. But, but as we think about these things that we did cover, there are three applications from this text I want to leave you with before we wrap up. And the first thing I want you to, the first thing is I, want, I need you to, to, to know is, is we all need to rest in Christ. If there's an application that you need to make from this, is, is you need to rest in Christ. Because not only does, does Jesus, is he the Lord of the Sabbath? Jesus is the point of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a picture of the rest that we have in Jesus. Jesus is the rest that you find for your weary soul. Jesus is the rest that you will find for your broken heart. Jesus is the rest that you will find from all the work and the requirements of legalism so that you can try to finally make yourself right with God. Jesus is the rest that you will find for, from empty religion. Jesus is the rest you will find from all your efforts trying to make God love you because God already loves you in Jesus Christ. And as you become overwhelmed with your life and as you become, you know, you know, sideways with all the challenges and the things that you need to do and as you become aware of, of the depth of your sin and the darkness of your heart and as you simply become worn out just simply from the pain that you feel remember to rest in Jesus he came in the world to save sinners which means he came to save you and I, I want you to think about that I mean if there's something to rest in and a truth to hold on to right, whether you're a Christian or not right, I want you to think about this Think about all the things that you've done in your life. Think about all the, the lies that you've told. Think about the things that, that you, you have done that, that still will make you ashamed when you think about them. Think about the people that, that you have hurt, whether intentionally or not. That, that, that's who you really are. That, that's, 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 that's who you've been in your life. And, and Christ came into the world to save you because he loves you. Soak in that for just a second. Like, do you ever stop and think about that? Let that penetrate your mind and your heart. As broken as you are, as sinful as you are, Christ came to save you because he loves you. In order to save you. In order to save you, he had to do two things. He had to live a life that, of perfect righteousness that you couldn't live. 
And then he had to suffer and die and pay a penalty for your sin that you couldn't pay. And so on the cross, Jesus traded places with you, the one that he loves. Nine-inch nails were driven into his hands and his feet for you. The holy wrath of God that you deserve was poured out on, on, on him for you. He died. He died for you to pay for your sins, to give you the righteousness that you would need to stand unashamed and unafraid before a, a holy and mighty God. And all you need to do is not obey a bunch of rules or try to live by some complicated religious system. All you need to do is repent and believe the gospel. Take all of your hope and all of your trust and you place it firmly on Jesus Christ. Just rest in him because it is finished, he said. The work is done. Second thing we need to do is we need to respect God's design. And what I mean by that is that you were designed a certain way. And so when God says take a day of rest, take a day of rest. Right? Just need to do it. Right? And not because it's a command, right? And not because he's going to strike you with lightning if you don't do it. But take a day of rest because it's good for you. Your body needs rest. Your mind needs rest. Your soul needs to be fed. Your heart needs to worship. You need time to rest and worship the Lord. You were designed by God to rest and rest in him. And so my encouragement for you is to respect God's design for your life. Get the rest that you need. Make time for worship and fellowship and reading of the word and staying, you know, and studying the word and, and in prayer, right? All of those things are good for you. And, and the thing that, on a side note, the thing that you need to realize is that everything that brings God glory ultimately is good for you. Isn't that really funny how that works? And then finally, my encouragement is to reject legalism. Because you're never, ever going to be able to earn God's favor by your own efforts. It's just not going to ever happen. You were accepted by God because of Christ and your faith in him alone. And let no one, including yourself, begin to impose external rules on your life that are, that are not from the word of God. Not to say that you, you can't have guardrails. Right? And don't start imposing your rules on other people. Because maybe for you, watching sports can be a big diversion from God and you should give it up, but that doesn't mean everybody else has to. Right? Right? Now just to be clear, I'm not talking about walking in holiness or becoming obedient to Christ because the fact of the matter is, is if you belong to Jesus, your life will change. And, and the thing that God hates, like pride and envy and sexual immorality and gossip and lust will be things that, that you will begin to hate. And the thing that God loves, whether honesty or faithfulness or purity or compassion, you will begin to love. And if you are in Christ, you will become more like him by the work of the Holy Spirit within you and your lives will begin to bear fruit and your behavior will, will change and we will become obedient as a natural outworking of what God is doing in us. But understand, right? we are all called to only do one thing, repent and believe. And as we go along and as we fall down our faces, we continue to what? Repent and believe the gospel and trust in Christ. And so the thing that I want to leave you with is this. Jesus Christ shed his blood to set you free from your sin and the poison of 
legalism. And so my encouragement to you and brothers and sisters is to repent and believe the gospel and live in that freedom by resting in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you again for your word. And I thank you for the example of Christ. That even he points us back to the word. That Jesus himself, being the author of the word, points to the word as authoritative. And then in that we can take comfort to know that our relationship with you is not about us keeping a bunch of rules. Our relationship is about our trust and faith in Jesus Christ and depending on him alone. Trusting that he, would, he will have his way in us and work in us the obedience to your law. I pray, Father, that all of our hearts would be moved that way, that our hearts would be tender, Lord, as we encounter people who, who struggle with legalism, who, who struggle with this need to go out and, and do stuff in order to make sure that they're right with you, Lord, that we would be patient with them and we would love them and we would show them that that is not the way. The way is to repent and believe the gospel and trust in Jesus. Not trusting in our own efforts, not looking at the external things that we do to, to prove our, our spiritual superiority. And the Father, we'd all walk in that humbly and gracefully, knowing that we can be afflicted by this, that we can fall into that trap, that Lord, help us to be sensitive to that creeping up in our hearts. But then Father, then help us to rest in you. Help us to just be satisfied in you. That no matter what comes our way, that we understand that we are yours. And that no matter what happens in this world, that ultimately they can't be taken away from us, that we are your children, and that we will one day stand in your presence perfected and there will be no more pain or tears or sorrow or strife. And I pray, Father God, that you would bless and protect every person in this congregation. And that, Father, you would grow us evermore into your image. And that you'd raise up a people today, Lord, who are willing to go out and take this truth and share it with their neighbors and their friends and their community and their world. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.